My name is Dave Billington. As a funeral director, I come to meet a lot of people during one of the most significant experiences of their lives, losing someone important. I also meet experts on grief and loss whose knowledge and advice have helped many with their own journeys. In this podcast, I'm going to share their stories with you. Raw and honest talk about bereavement, mental health, with people explaining how this has impacted their own life and the others around them. Welcome to Life, Love and Loss, Learning from Grief. Today's guest is Gary Andrews. Gary is a man of many talents. He is an author, a director of both film and theatre, an illustrator that has worked on Wind in the Willows and with Disney, to name but a few. Gary is also a father of two and generally just a very creative and impressive individual. But incorporated into all this creativity, there is another layer to his story. Gary was widowed in 2017. And as I'm sure you can imagine, this created a whole new world view for both him and his family. Since then, Gary has released a beautiful book describing this journey into becoming a widower called Finding Joy and has been heavily involved in the bereavement community to help move the needle in a positive direction in and around conversations involving death and dying. Gary, welcome. Thank you so much for taking some time out to come and speak with me today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a very busy man. Thank thank you for asking. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. And I just wondered if we could start by kind of talking a little bit about Finding Joy as a book, because it's a bit different from most books that are out there. I guess it is, really. I mean, I I, I suppose a lot of books on bereavement and stuff have been written by experts or people who've been through it or whatever and have got got something to say uh, about it, you know, and and have have decided to write a book or whatever. Hmm. And... um, it wasn't that wasn't really how this one happened i mean i was posting a daily doodle diary online just for myself as a kind of form of self counseling and and just generally letting people know how i was and for me it was a way of working through my feelings and 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 stuff and i got approached by some publishers and they said have you got a publisher and i said no and they said would you like one i went yes okay um and 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 it sort of stemmed from there so i worked with with the with the editor abigail at, at, um at jonathan murray publishers and we um we put the book together, really. So it, it, it wasn't one that was intended to be a book, really, initially, you know, but but um, it fell together quite nicely as a book and told, tells a story because it is essentially a diary of that process, you know. And for those that haven't ever seen this book or any of Gary's work, the book is essentially a collection of illustrations that mm. just go through the whole process of from before you became a widower to you finding out the news about joy dying and then your journey with your family after that in pictorial kind of explanations that's right really beautiful images in there as well you're really talented gary thank you very much thank you well it's i mean i mean i'm lucky i mean drawing something i've done ever since i was a child you know since i could hold a pencil um i'm lucky it's something that comes naturally to me so as a way of expressing myself and a way of 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 um so sort of translating my thoughts it's it's a no-brainer for me it's it's something I do like some people are musicians that can just sit at a keyboard and play a tune and, and I, I can't but but everyone has a thing they can do for me I'm lucky it's drawing so it's a very visual medium it's very immediate medium and you can get quite a complex uh, emotion over with a very simple drawing you know by making analogies within that drawing or whatever and I so said I was using them really just to sort of 
um, process what was going on in my head, I suppose, during 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 the whole course of of you know, being bereaved and in those early days and then working it through. And then as time goes by, the grief side of it drops away and the sort of being a single dad side takes over a bit. You know, certainly now, if you look at it on a day to day basis, it's more about being a dad. But every now and then, of course, the grief comes back because it never goes away. You just learn to live with it, you know, and 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 it's, it's interesting to me to catalogue how that journey flows. So I was always... Um, one of the things I always sort of promised myself is that the drawings would be completely honest and they'd be things that had happened. And if I had a bad day, I made sure I catalogued that as well as a good day because it became clear quite quickly when I was drawing them and putting them out there, the responses I started to get from other people was that, that they were relating to it and it was touching them and it was helping people who couldn't find ways to express how they were feeling. They could see it through the drawings and it was, it was, it was like letting them know they weren't alone or they could show it to their friends go this this is what I was talking about I couldn't put it into words but look so it was kind of it, it, I became aware that this was happening so it was very important to me that I rem remained honest in the drawings and charted all aspects of the journey you know so that people realize it's not all it's not all roses and wonderfulness or it's not all depths of despair it's everything on that graph and I think that's a really powerful thing that you said there because the spectrum of emotions no one's happy all the time and no one's sad all the time but within social media, there very much is this kind of highlight reel mentality of yeah. people putting out just the good stuff all the time. Yeah. Whereas I, I am a follower. I've, <laughs> I'm on your Instagram and I look regularly. And you put something up the other day, which I thought was really poignant. And it was a picture of you that you'd drawn kind of at the, in the kitchen. And you were really proud of yourself of like how much you'd come on in terms yeah. of your cooking skills, but then you yeah. also reflected back on how your wife would see you within that kind of image as well. And I thought that was lovely. And I just wondered if we could talk about that for a second. Yeah, she um, she crops up quite regularly in the in the drawings still. Is this sort of slightly ethereal presence? You know, I use a different pen. So I'm using the black ink pen for myself and I use a pencil for her with a, with a white sort of highlighting, a bit like in Star Wars when, they, when you get the, the force ghosts in Star Wars when they come back. And there's that sense of her there just to sort of to symbolise really within the drawings my memories of her and my knowledge of how she would be feeling about how things are going on and the fact that she always feels kind of present because, you know, if you hold someone in your heart still, they're always there, whether they're physically gone they're still with you if you've still got that love and you still hold them in your heart. They're, they're kind of there. So I, I draw her in sometimes on the days when I'm really feeling that kind of thing. And it was one of those days, yeah, I'd been, um, I mean, she did all the cooking. She was amazing. She was such a good cook, you know, and I didn't have to cook for years. <laughs> and the reason she died is like, oh my goodness, I've got to feed the children. Um, so for the first year, it was just, you know, um, convenience food. And then I started getting into cooking. And just before the first lockdown, um, I had my kitchen completely redone, <laughs> completely redone because I, 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 I did Christmas. I kind of enjoyed it, but my kitchen was not well laid out. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to treat myself. So I did a new kitchen and just finished it as lockdown started. So I had all this time in lockdown to sort of discover this, this sort of love of of cooking and, and experiment and <laughs> I had these two little people who couldn't go anywhere that I could just try things out on um and um and I've totally fallen in love with it and it's this huge journey that I've made and it's another one of those aspects of when when you become widowed of how you as a person change and I've had this conversation with widow friends of mine who we say you know god if our 
partners walked back into the room now, they barely recognize us or elements of us because of how much we've had to grow and change since they died. Um, and it was a reflection of that, really, the fact that this this cooking man, this guy that does all this stuff and adores it, she would laugh her head off at the thought of me doing that because, you know, I could barely boil an egg, you know. So it was, um, yeah, it's that really. I think that's what you're you're alluding yeah, to. Definitely. Yeah. What are some of the other aspects you think that have really shifted in your work? Um, it's... It, it's just the practical day to day. I mean, what's very strange is our relationship was we were very modern in terms of, you know, we, we were very modern as people. We, we worked in media. We had our own little company. But we were strangely old fashioned in one way because I my, my income was vastly the, the larger of the two. So when we had the children, we made the choice. She made the choice to, to become a, a at home mum and do that. And she ran the house because she was just really good at it, and it gave and it allowed me the time to just get on with the work. I was present; I'd be I'd be around. I was working from home, but there was this strange thing where basically she did she did everything. So once she died, suddenly it was like okay, that's, so that's cooking, laundry, school, school. You know, there was everything, all those day to day practicalities, which just sort of magically happened around me while I got on with work. Um, suddenly, one had to do that, and and what was initially this incredibly daunting thought and this you'll see um there was a doodle quite early on after she had, about a week after she died when i was exhausted and i posted one about um if anybody says being a stay-at-home mum is easy i'll yeah. punch them in the face um because it was it was exhausting but at some point one suddenly realizes oh i'm just doing it all now and actually, it's become part of the, that natural thing. If I am, you don't think twice. You're not having to go be reminded to check the laundry or to do the thing. Or can you just make sure you just do this stuff automatically? And you seem to take on uh, all all the, those huge jobs that seem so daunting when you don't do them. <laughs> Suddenly, they just become part of your day to day routine without even thinking about it. And I kind of love that. It's it's fascinating how you absorb and take on these other these other aspects of life dealing with all the school stuff i mean you know it was a year after joy died that my daughter went up to secondary school and i say all those decisions one would have made as a as a pair i had to make on my own you know and things like that were initially quite scary now my son is about to go up this september and i've barely looked at the book because you kind of know it all now you know and little things like that i guess it's those sort of changes I've got to say, I have a massive respect for you, Gary. I mean, I became a dad last year and I found the transition of just becoming a dad and having all these extra responsibilities on top of work life. At yeah. first, I found it really daunting and a bit overloading, but now I'm kind of in the swing of it. I'm really yeah. loving it and I'd never want to go back again. Um, but I have my partner to kind of bounce off and especially when there's things that I'm not so sure about and where we're not so sure about, we can kind of take that time to discuss yeah. and go through things. And that must have been a really big shift. For you. That is one of the huge things, you know, when, when suddenly you find yourself on your own is for whatever reason and it's not always necessarily a bereavement it could be it could be a divorce it could be whatever and often people say to me oh, it's not the same because i'm divorced i say it's still a loss you know you're still dealing with a lot of the same issues um yeah it is incredibly daunting those things when you would just turn to your partner and go what do you think about this and, and you, you sort of and there's no one there to turn to and you go i've got to, i've got to, i've got to have that conversation in my own head now and i mean we were so close 
that I can still have those conversations in my head with her and kind of know what she would have said. So I still bounce those questions around and, and listen for those answers. And I think I'm pretty sure she would have said that, you know, and I, I and a lot of people who knew her have looked at many of the decisions I've made, you know, since she died and gone, yeah, absolutely. She'd be 100%. And, and you know, big things and small things, small things like, you know, getting new covers for my dining room chairs. You know, I had, we had these covers over the chairs and the old ones were all horrible. And I, I got some new ones and, and one of her friends came and went, Oh my God, Gosh, she'd have loved those covers. And you go, yep, good. You know, so from little things like that to big decisions about about school and about life. And you know, my daughter my daughter turning 13 and going through puberty and all the things that involves with a with a young woman. You know, my little girl has become a young woman and I've been there to hold her hand through all that. I mean, you know, literally and, and, and deal with all those sort of things that women have to go through that a lot of dads are shielded from by the mums or whatever, you know. And you're there sort of, you know, buying her period pants and stuff, you know, whatever. So, but it's a huge honor as well, you know, I mean, to be put in this position, it's extraordinary. And I've, I've kind of tried to embrace that and rather be, rather than be daunted by it, I'd see it as another challenge and, and, and take it on and go for it, you know. Yeah, well, the post that you put up yesterday about your son, Ben, and I, I just thought it was lovely. And there's oh. a picture of him rock climbing and he's yeah. describing a list of all his kind of characteristics. <laughs> how privileged you feel to have him in your life. Like, it's amazing. He drives me insane. He's absolutely pain in the what's but he's also just the best thing in the world. You know what I mean? It's like all these little things like this morning I went to, went to comb my hair. I was like, Ben! where is my comb? And he's wandered off with it and put it down in his room. And it's like, he does this all the time. These little things that constantly, you know, <laughs> you have to tell him every day and, and just, yeah, all that stuff. But, and this stream of consciousness that comes out of his mouth the whole time. <laughs> and it's like, you ever, if you stop talking, your mouth won't heal up. You know that, right? Um, but there's just so much love and affection and humour and... Yeah, it's just such a great, great job, you know, being a, being a dad when you've got when you've got good kids. And I'm lucky. I am lucky. They're good kids. And I do see some people with, you know, kids that can be more challenging, if you like, and, and hard work. And that would be that would be difficult. I am very lucky. You know, they're, they're not difficult kids. So I'm, 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 I'm I am lucky in that respect. I guess a lot of that is down to. I mean, people have said this to me. I say this to people, they go, well, don't forget, you know, you guys brought them up. And I, I do credit Joy with, you know, with just what a brilliant grounding she gave them in that, in, you know, that before she died, you know, when she was primarily the caregiver, you know, while I was out here working. I mean, they're fantastic. So, and we talked, I mean, that's the thing as well. We, co we communicate as a family all the time. We talk about stuff. From like some, obviously, it only gives like a snapshot into your yeah. family life in the book, but there are some really like meaningful illustra illustrations that really depict like certain points in your family life, which are really personal, straight after Joy had died, and how the kids were dealing with that, and how you were all interacting. And it yeah. seems like you are super close as a unit. Have you found that their relationships with you have shifted really significantly over the past few years? As they, I, I think so. I mean, I, I kind of. I, I sort of confronted that head on literally straight away. Um, when I got home, when I'd, I'd been away on business and I, I, I flew back from Canada, but because I was told to come back because she'd been taken to hospital, but by the time I landed, she died. So it was kind of, it was all very sudden. 
and my um, sister-in-law and brother-in-law who were there at the time had managed to keep that from them. That she, when she's gone to hospital, they knew that they knew she'd gone to hospital, but they'd managed to keep from them that she died so that I could tell them. And um, one of the first things after I told them that she died and we, and we got over that, one of the first things I actually said to them is guys, look, I'm going to struggle. We're all going to struggle. We're going to cry. I'm not going to hide that from you. You know, I'm going to, you know, don't think you need to hide anything from me. And, um, uh, then I also said, look, things are going to be very different now because with, with mummy gone and just me just having to do this, we're going to have to be a team. I can't just be daddy doing everything, telling you what to do. We've got to work together. I mean, those seven and 10 when this happened, you know, so it was quite a big thing for them to take on. And, um, but they kind of got that. And we did. So we did. We talked very openly about how we felt and about how we missed her. And but also about, oh, she'd have been, enjoy- you know, she'd have loved this, wouldn't she? You know, and not brushing under the carpet the fact that she was dead, but but talking about her in the past tense, but in a positive way a lot of time. But but um, but also just sort of working together in that way of going, OK, guys, look, I, I, normally I'd be doing this for you, but I, I've got stuff to do. So you need to go and do this thing that I would normally be doing for you, which made them kind of grow up quite quick in a lot of practical ways over those th- three and a half years. It's been now just over three and a half years. Um, but also it meant that I guess some of the stuff the way we had to talk about things together that maybe would have taken a little bit slower if you were still mum and dad. There wasn't time to sort of um, beat around the bush with stuff. You just had to confront things head on, you know, about life and love and people and whatever, just practicalities. Um, so yeah, there, there is this slight little shift, I guess, that it's it doesn't feel quite like, you know, the children and daddy as much as it as as this they're, they're sort of mates in a way i'm still dad and they know that but there is a really close close bond i think um yeah it's you mentioned in one of your emails that you enjoy kind of followed a bit of a secular pagan lifestyle yeah could you just elaborate a little bit on that because i know little bits about a kind of pagan ideology but yeah everyone kind of interprets it slightly differently sure um yeah i mean i suppose neither of us were religious people at all and but we were kind of you you still want something you know not not necessarily a belief system but just a, a way of being and we both love history and mythology and all that kind of thing and that led us into a path looking at a lot of a lot of um modern paganism if you like and and there was a lot in there that we could relate to um we both love nature we both love all that sort of thing and we very quickly latched on to the side of paganism which is all based around the wheel of the year and the cycles of nature and um you have things like you know in paganism there's things like the horned god and the goddess and stuff like that but they 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 symbolize forces of nature now now some people some some pagans believe in the gods as gods in the same way that Christians believe in God as a real as a real being. Some pagans believe in like the horned god, the goddess, are beings in, in the way that people believe in deities. We always talked about them, but as a anthropomorphism of nature forces. 
So the goddess is basically the land and the way the land changes. And the horn god, the green man in the woods, is 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 the way the seasons work in the trees and stuff like that. And and, and the day, day for night, day and night, and the moon and the sun. You know, just the, the this cyclic nature of our world. And that's the kind of side of things that we sort of followed. So we followed the wheel of the year and there's eight festivals throughout the wheel of the year at various, every sort of couple of months is, is the thing. We just had Beltane the other day. And um, we would say like light a little candle on that day or whatever, and just sort of mark that moment in the year that had passed. And on that day, you look around and go, look, look at the buds that are growing now. Look at the, the way that this has come through in the earth that is going back to the earth. And that's the kind of life that we that we followed if you see what i mean with so it's the, kind of making you just more mindful and present for that part of the year and appreciate yeah, i think so and just being very in touch with the world around you rather you're not set, set aside or above or you know apart from it but you're just part of this bigger thing which is nature and, and we belong like to that sorry gary no that's um, it. No, I, that was it i was just going to say do you feel like this has informed your um or influence, let's just say, is probably a better description, like the rituals that you've created to remember joy since then. Absolutely, 100%, yeah. Um, I mean, when she died, for me, the moment she died, that that ceased to be her, it wasn't her. The body was was the vessel that contained who she was. And um, we, I, I made a decision, actually, that... that um, she was cremated, but but remotely. I, I didn't. I wasn't even at the cremation because for me that wasn't her. It was something that needed to be done. But I I didn't feel that was a necessary thing for me to be. So the the people that um, had a lovely uh, funeral company that, that dealt with her, who were absolutely fantastic, and did these green funerals thing. And we had a cardboard coffin and she was cremated and they told me when and where and they told me what they were going to say at the time and read. So when that was happening and I knew it was happening and it was quite a long way away because the one near me didn't do them. So I said, well, let's do it at the one where it's going to happen. That's fine. And, and at the moment it was happening, I lit a candle and I sat with her best friend came round with me and we sat together, had a little cry when we knew it was happening at one o'clock, you know, and, and just remembered and lit the candle and, and um, marked the moment. Um, and then when I got her ashes, th then we had her ceremony once I'd got the ashes. And and we, sorry, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've jumped ahead. We got the ashes later. There were two ceremonies. There was a ceremony about a month after she died, which was, a, which was a passing ceremony, we called it, where we went to the woods in a big circle and we had a little ceremony that, that celebrated her life and remembered her and sort of let her go. And it was a beautiful ceremony. And um, as part of that, one of the things we asked people to do, a friend of mine sang this beautiful song, which was a Shakespeare lullaby. And while that was happening, we'd asked everybody to bring with them something organic, something biodegradable, like a leaf, a feather, a, a piece of fruit, whatever it was. And during this song that we had this cauldron, as it were, and people would could come along and put their offering, if you like, in that and just have with a memory a thought a wish a prayer whatever they wanted to do about her and these all went in this this big container and then when we got her ashes we'd arranged to have a tree planted for her in, in this park near near where we live and so in the hole that we dug to plant the tree all the stuff that was in that cauldron got put in the root hole along with some of her ashes so that 
her ashes and all the thoughts and mm. prayers that yeah. had been dedicated to her were feeding that tree to help it grow. I love and, that. Yeah, um, it worked so well. And people were very moved by that because they hadn't thought of it. And it was, it, I thought it was a, a lovely idea. Um, and it was so symbolic of, of, again, the cycle of life and everything. So that sort of aspect of things has very much been influenced by it. And also the way I look on it as well. And I talk to the children because children ask these questions, you know, what happens after you die? You know, 11 o'clock at night, you know, when they can't sleep and you go, oh, my gosh. Um, and so I say to them, well, nobody knows. People have beliefs, different, different religions, different peoples have different beliefs about what happens. But we don't know. Um, it's one of the great mysteries, one of the great adventures, you know, and we'll find out one day. Um, and um, I said, but what I think is that, you know, energy, <laughs> energy has to go somewhere. You, you know, energy physics tells you that it has to go somewhere. So the energy in our body when we die has to go back out into the universe. So basically we come from stardust, we go to stardust. You know, it's that whole thing about your atoms. of You contain atoms from the beginning of time and from all the universe. You know, so when you die, boom, they're back out there, which means that mummy's everywhere. You know, she's if 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 you miss her and you want to tap into her, she's she's that beam of light. She's that butterfly. She's that breeze. She's whatever you want her to be. She is everywhere. And that's kind of what I think. And they took that on board and went, yeah, they, they go with that as well. So that's. Yeah, that is, that is beautiful. And I think having something like that means no matter at what point in the life or where they are, they can always have that continuing. Yeah. That's 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 the feeling that I have. I mean, and, and I'm not belittling anyone else's belief. Everyone is entitled to their own beliefs and whatever makes anybody comforted is great for them. That happens to be mine. And, and I said to the kids, you don't have to believe this because I believe it. You know, grandma um, is, is Christian, believes in the whole in the whole sort of heaven thing. You know, that's her thing. If you want to do that, you know, that's that's up to you. you. You make your own decisions. But I'm just telling you what I think. But they kind of have gone along with well, they've, they've been brought up with it, surrounded by it, you know, so they kind of see how it worked for us. And, and they certainly at this moment in their life, they sort of go down that route themselves, really. And are there any rituals now that you kind of continue to do year on year or certain things? There's not, not in, well, I mean, I still, I still mark all the, the turnings of the wheel. And um, I've actually got a little stone in the garden where some of our ashes are as well. And, and usually now what, what I'll do on each of the, on each of the festivals is instead of lighting the candle in the room, I might nip down the end of the garden and just sort of sit there for five minutes next to the stone and maybe light a little candle next to the stone and just sort of, you know, catch her up on things as it were and, and just sort of mark the moment there um and on the on the sort of fest on the sort of harvesty ones I'll, I'll i'll you know sprinkle a few sort of oats or something around there and pour a little bit of mead on the on the stone or whatever just just again symbolic things that that are part of some of the bigger ceremonies that that people do around that time but other little things we do like um, always around her her birthday which is in the middle of summer um mm. we always used to have a garden party like open house day where we'd have mates around and we just open the doors at 11 and say right come when you want go when you want there'll be food on the go and we just had a day like that and we still do that even you know now to sort of mark her birthday I still have open house Joy's birthday around that time so we keep her present in that in that way as well so that's a sort of ritual if you like in, 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 a, in a sort of way um but no I mean I think really the, the 
the main thing is that we just keep her very present in our lives with in the way we talk about her you know that the, uh, there's not a day goes by when she doesn't come up in conversation with the kids in some way um and i think that's the closest thing to a ritual if you like that we still have it's just the ritual of of the familiarity of her presence you know and just talking about her still one of the things that he talks about in the book which i found really intriguing was the grief demon Mm. And you have this illustration on one of the pages where you've kind of got, um, I've got it here in front of me actually. So right. one month you've got the, the oppressor and the grief demon's on your back. He's clinging to you. You can barely breathe. And... He's got his hand right in my chest, crushing my heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really just full on. And then six months, this grief demon becomes a shadow. And he's just kind of following you around and he's ever present. And then 10 months, the grief can be, com, uh, demon becomes this companion. And yeah. It, that relationship obviously shifted for you yes. significantly at that point. And then you talk about a little later that actually in 18 months on, the grief demon just has this kind of gentle hand on your shoulder. Yeah. And I wondered where you feel that relationship is with the grief demon now. Yeah, as now he's very much become a presence like on the opposite end of the sofa or in the corner of the room or just loitering in the shadows in, 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 in the edges of, or even next door, you know, he's, he's around and I know he's there, but he's kind of 99% of the time now he knows his place and I, I can, he can stay over there and he's there. I know he's there, but he doesn't bother me. He's just there. And then two things can happen. Every now and then I can be doing something and he can creep up behind me and go, boo, I'm here. And just make me go, oh gosh, you know, that, yeah, a feeling takes me by surprise and overwhelms me. Um, or uh, the flip side of that is I could be sitting of an evening sometime and just feeling a thing and I can go, come on, come over, come sit next to me. Let's have a little moment. And I can invite him in to just let something out. So, but it's very much now in control in, in that sense of like, I'm the boss of him most of the time, but he does still have those moments when he take, when he goes, don't forget, I can still take you by surprise occasionally. Um, so that's kind of where it sits now. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where he's going to stay. It feels like he's settled in now. And that, that's the, that's the position, uh, which is fine, I think. And for a while, did you feel that, was it almost a comfort to have this kind of grief demon in your life? It, it kind of, it's because it's a sort of, yeah, I called him like an unwelcome companion, but, 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 but a kind of um, this sort of love hate relationship with it. You know, the thing is, and I've said this before, and it's a cliche, but it's true. I mean, grief is love. That's got nowhere to go. Grief. You wouldn't grieve if you didn't love. If, if, if you've lost something you didn't love, you're not going to grieve about it. You're not going to care. So, the more you've loved, the more you're going to grieve. It's as simple as that. So his very presence is an acknowledgement of the fact that there was such great love there in the first place. And I'm, I'm comforted by that in a way that, that I was lucky enough to have that. So, so I'm not going to begrudge his presence because it is a reminder of just how lucky I was, you know? So, I, but, but, He's very much now, you know, knows who's the boss, but just occasionally sort of tries to sort of make a little stand just to remind me. Um, but the funny thing about that is actually where it comes now, usually 
it comes out of things that are beautiful rather than things that are sad. Things that are designed to make me sad when I'm watching films, or whatever, and they do things that are supposed to be sad. Just doesn't touch me at all. Because it's very hard to be moved by things that are contrived to make you sad when you've been through real loss, I think. But the things that push me now are beautiful moments. So I was watching, there's a program on Netflix called Call My Agent. It's a French comedy series comedy drama and um there was a sequence in that something where one of the characters gave birth to a baby in the middle of the office and they all everyone crowded around and they were helping deliver this child because the doctors you know. and it's kind of filmed in a, in a very matter-of-fact way it's not it's not it's sort of called midwife levels of schmaltz you know what i mean it's kind of just really practical kind of funny in places like that and then there's a bit in that where the woman's wife um had to cut the cord or whatever and I just fell apart because it just reminded me of the moment when I had to do that for Lily on the first, you know, when the first time I, and, and just joy being there and being this warrior delivering this baby and then me cutting that cord. It just brought back all that feeling of love on that day. And suddenly I was in bits you know? <laughs> and it was, and it was, and it, I could I could sort of feel it, the demon in the corner going, <laughs> gotcha, you know, um, because it was that, it was that, that sort of tinged that feeling you know so yeah it's stuff like that that gets me now rather than than sad things you know you've mentioned a couple of times as well in the book about kind of friends coming in and mm. helping you in certain situations and i just wondered um as a man uh, i don't know what it's like within your friends but quite a lot of my friends they're not great at talking about emotion it's not one of the things that comes naturally a lot of things to uh, to to a lot of men out there yeah. and I wondered what kind of your the dynamics of your relationships how they changed after Joy died um with your friends because that must have been a big shift in some it's way. a big shift and um I mean one of the things that a lot of people don't really think about or don't realize is that they lost her too you know yes I'd lost her but so had they and that affected a lot of people quite deeply. I mean, she was only 41 and it was unexpected. So it was kind of, it was a big shock to a lot, you know, it was a, the closest death a lot of people had had, you know, sort of thing to some to a contemporary like that. So it, it really sort of pulled the rug out from under a lot of people's feet. Um, and and I was very aware of that actually, that I wasn't alone in my, in my grief. So that was, that was an interesting dynamic that one sort of realized but it was it was kind of lovely i mean the friends were brilliant and i think because we were all arty theater types as well we're probably a little bit better about talking about our emotions than some um but even even so i mean not everyone wanted to so i had one one friend who basically moved in the day she died didn't leave my house for two weeks he just slept on my sofa in case i needed anything he's like a really good mate um and and that was just lovely, you know. And he was such a, a sort of rock to me. But then I remember, I remember, like a couple of months down the line, I had to have an evening comforting him because then it all hit him, you know, sort of thing. And and the, the roles reversed. But I'd even have things like just, you know, if I was having just a bit of a struggly day, one of them might turn up with a couple of beers and sit next to me on the sofa. We'd crack and barely say a word, but just be there. And that was rather lovely too. Not even feeling we had to talk, but just being and and then and then you know off they go later on. it was like we probably said half a dozen words all evening but you know it was kind of that sort of thing was great or we'd have whole evenings just talking so 
And I think it is important. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people, if somebody knows somebody who becomes bereaved, I think one of the important things for them to realize is that we are, we are happy to talk about it or happy. We will want to talk about it quite possibly, but often people don't know what to say because they're worried they might upset us or they just don't know what to say. I, I would say to those people, just ask, just say, do you want to talk? I'm here to listen if you want to talk or I'm here just to be if you want to be because it, it's going to be very hard for them to say anything that's going to upset us because we've had the worst thing happen. Mm -hmm. So unless they're saying something really crass, which is unlikely if they're a decent person, you know, they can't really sort of push us too far. So it, because talking helps so much. And, um, so, and just being an ear for somebody is, is really important. I think this is probably quite a nice place to pivot into the fact that since Joyce died and you've written Finding Joy and you've kind of got this doodle diary, which is ever growing online, you've become a real kind of advocate for the bereavement community and you've really stepped up into quite a few different roles in that. And I just wondered yeah. if we could touch on a few of those. Yeah, it's, it's so surreal. It's one of those things that it was completely unlooked for, but has found me. And I guess I saw in a way how useful it was being for people. And I, I guess, I'm lucky there's a couple of things so the drawing is a very visual way of interpreting stuff and it put me into a sort of slightly public place um because of the nature of my work being you know directing in in animation and stuff like that i'm used to talking and i'm used to communicating i'm a storyteller with with drawing and stuff as well and also working in theater acting and directing and stuff like that so i'm used to communicate so i i um I think I saw an opportunity to actually be useful <laughs> and, and, and seeing that people could take something from it. I said, yeah, I'm going to dive into this hundred percent because the first couple of things like this I did um, and saw that it was helping people suddenly made Joy's death less pointless. Yeah. You know, if she hadn't died, I wouldn't be having these talks. I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't be doing the things I do. And I, you know, I have evidence that it's helped people. Therefore, you know, the messages I get are beautiful. And I think, well, it gives it some sort of purpose, you know, and, and that helps me too. It, it helps me heal, knowing that what I'm doing, knowing that something that's come off the back of her death is helping other people get through this sort of thing. It's a very healing thing for me as well. Yeah. I'm not being completely selfless. It's, um, you know, I do benefit from this as well, but it's lovely. And, and, I, and I've found lots of little things. I've been, I've done lots of, podcasts and interviews and um been on a couple of panels and things with the with the good grief festival and stuff like that and i'm doing a series of um workshops for them which are about using drawing as a means of self uh oh my god my brain's gone to pieces today uh, using drawing as a means of self-counselling. Um, I've done three of the four so far, and each one's had a slightly different theme, and, and they've been proving useful to people. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've found these sort of... Is there any spaces left on these? Can people still get involved? Yeah, I mean, there's one more left. We've got one more workshop coming up on the 19th uh, of this month. Um, so two yeah a couple of weeks i don't know when this is going out but yeah the 19th of may is the final one of these workshops but then they are available to look back on on the good grief channel as well they are you know so you, although you can't be part of them you can watch them and see what what was talked about and 
free content or is this kind of behind the paywall? I think these, I think they're free. I think to be in, the, to attend them is free, I believe. Um, the stuff on the, cha- the, the channel, the Good Grief Festival channel, I think is £20 for the year for unlimited access to all the workshops. And there are so many interviews, workshops, um, sessions. I mean, they're, they're fabulous. And I say I've been involved with quite a few, but there are some incredible people on those. And it's a great channel for people who are in the business or just for people who are going through it. For 20 quid, you've got this this massive library of stuff that you can you can tap into that's worth worth a look if you're interested um and i'm sure there's going to be more i mean you know if people want to follow me on the socials which is always gary scribbler on either twitter or instagram anytime any of these sort of things come up i will let people know they're happening so uh, i i can't believe that this one in a couple of weeks will be the end of it they, they seem to be a sort of thing that do crop up from time to time um also come across that you're an ambassador for a couple of charities is that right it's yeah again it's one of those amazing things that i got um approached by so winston's wish approached me who are a, a children's bereavement charity and, and they they approached me and um yeah we were lucky in the sense that my ch- my children and i we talk so they didn't ever need counseling but I'm very aware of how useful it is for a lot of families who perhaps found it more difficult to talk and children, especially, you know, it's very difficult for them and it's a very complex area. And so I thought they're such a wonderful, wonderful charity and they're, you know, national. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm a digital ambassador for them and also Marie Curie. I've done a couple of panels with them as well. And they're looking at, you know, uh, end of life care and, po- and post bereavement care and stuff like that. So I'm ambassador for both of those. And then the big draw, is the other one, um, which is basically using creativity uh, um, as as a form of of, of healing and, and 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 help and and stuff like that. And I've actually just they've just asked me now to become a patron as well. So I've, I've gone from ambassador to patron for them, which is rather lovely. Um, and that one's very close to my heart, obviously, because of the nature of it being art based. And I'm such a strong believer that creativity in all its forms is so helpful i'm such a great believer in in using art as a form of 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 self-help and 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 just looking after your mental well-being um just having that that avenue to express yourself is is so vital i think mindfulness you know it's it's a very modern phrase but it's actually quite a a valid thing for me the doodling every night is is really the drawing is the easy bit at the end it's it's the bit leading up to it where i'm thinking about what that drawing is going to be is the bit that matters it's the bit where i'm unpacking the day where i'm thinking about that moment and and um so any kind of art therapy if you like i think is an incredibly useful thing so yeah yeah i agree i mean i would not count myself as an artist but i have dabbled in the past year and one of the things i found a lot was I'm not actually drawing anything from my head because I'm not that talented, but I get a photograph and Mm -hmm. I try and sketch that photograph to as close as possible to the picture I see there. And I just find I lose myself in it when I completely forget about anything else that I'm doing. I'm just in that moment. Very relaxing, very, yeah, because you can't, you know, you can't be thinking about, you've got to concentrate on that moment. And, and it is, it's, it's almost like meditation. Mm. It pushes you into that. The other thing I say to people who want to use drawing for themselves, maybe to express their some feelings, so rather than using the art as a kind of escape copy, but using it as a way to express themselves, one of the sort of basic fundamental things I say to people on that is you don't have to be an artist. The drawings that you do, I'm, I'm lucky, I draw 
people recognize what I draw and and it's you know become a book blah 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 blah. But stick men, just draw stick men and squiggles and shapes and blobs of color. Just express the thoughts and emotions by doing that and you can keep them in a little book or you can just do them on a piece of paper and once you've let that emotion out you can tear it up or burn it or whatever you don't have to keep it it's the act of doing is the thing that's so useful and so uh, in terms of just sort of uh helping yourself to sort of free yourself of any of these things that are feeling that are oppressing you you know the self-counseling yeah. aspect of it is just doing and i suppose this could apply to just any ages and any capacity levels as well absolutely yeah it works for children it works for adults it works for it works at all kinds of loss and bereavement as i say not just bereavement but all kinds of other loss or struggle i mean this last year goodness me i mean people have had a lot to deal with and use you can use it for that as well you know i mean people are are, are grieving loss of a lifestyle loss of a loss of loss of a normality or whatever that's just as valid a grief you know so any of these little tools that one can use to sort of help yourself just find moments of peace, you know, definitely. So what's next for Gary Andrews then? Is there a follow-up book? Is there oh, my goodness. films on the horizon? What, what's next? Um, I mean, at the moment, getting on with work, getting on with life, enjoying the fact that things are starting to happen again. I'm getting back into the theatre that I love doing, you know, and doing got some shows coming up, which I'm directing and things. Um, there are a couple of ideas book-wise. I mean, there's nothing official, and I've not had a word with the publishers and like that, but I have been thinking about a companion book, if you liked it, not a follow on, not a sequel, but a companion book that would look at it from the children's perspective. There are a lot of books out there for children where people have written books for children about grieving, but I haven't seen many that are basically by children. And what I'd kind of like to do is sit with my kids and talk to them and make notes and record and stuff and create something that was from their perspective. I think that there could be a lot of value in that. I think um, a lot of value in that. I can see that yeah. helping a lot of people, Gary. Thank you. Well, that's something I, that's something that I'm thinking about, but it's some, it's going to take some planning and, and I, I will talk to publishers at some point. And if they haven't got a room for it, then I'll probably just self-publish something like that. But I think it's something I, it's, the more I think about it, the more it's kind of becoming a thing for me at the moment. And my children are just reaching a point the conversations we've had recently where I feel that they could articulate their experiences well enough for it to be something that I could sort of turn into something quite useful. So yeah, that might be, that might be, I mean, don't hold your breath, but that could be what's coming. Well, if you do go down that route, please get in touch because from the families that I support kind of within the funeral world, whenever we have a family that has a bereavement and there's children involved, it's always a discussion, which is, is really difficult for the, the parent or parents that are involved within that bereavement world. And so having something from a child's perspective, and because Billy and Ben are obviously different ages, you're going to get different types of interpretations coming yeah. in from that, um, both male and female as well. Yeah. I can just see that being a huge help. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I hope so. Yeah, well, you know, I think that that's that's what I hope that that it it can it can become something that that could be you know just a comfort to people. Again, it's all it's all everything's become about wanting to sort of help people really because you know when you go through this kind of thing, 
it's nice to be able to sort of give back. You know, you you feel the pain that you're going through. You think anything you can do to help other people just sort of lessen that a little bit. It's 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 got to be good, you know. And it and it and it it helps us feel better. And it and it just makes, as I said before, makes the whole thing less pointless. So yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Gary, I think this is a wonderful place to end it. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to speak with me today. If people do want to find you on the, the interweb, where yep. would be the best places to find if they If they go to Twitter or Instagram and just put in at Gary Scribbler, you will find me on either of those. Those are probably the best place. And then through that, you'll be able to find any other bits and pieces where I turn up. But that's your best shop window. And if they want to buy the book, Finding Joy, where is the best place to find that? Well, that is available all over the shop. You can get it from, you know, the, the, the mighty Amazon or the lovely Waterstones. Or if you have a nice independent bookseller near you, please go and support them and buy it through an independent bookseller. It's published by John Murray's and it's called Finding Joy. And um, yeah, basically it's everywhere, but you have to find it. <laughs> Lovely. Right. Well, thanks, Gary. Take Thank care. You. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for listening to Life, Love and Loss, Learning from Grief. Please look out for more stories and honest conversation about people and their journeys through grief. Grief.